This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Bill Stout, the genius of Dearborn, Michigan, has been responsible for more revolutionary innovations in the design and construction of automobiles and airplanes than has any other man, living or dead. That's from a news article in 1943. Hi, everybody. I'm Ben. And I'm Scott. And today, Ben, we've decided to open the show a little bit differently because uh, this is a uh, unique car as well, right? Yeah, this is a unique car by a unique engineer and designer. This is, ladies and gentlemen, the 1936 Stout Scarab. That's right. We promised it in our last podcast, and here it is. And uh, this comes to us from a guy or a uh, company, rather, um, William Bushnell Stout was the uh, was the designer, right? And it comes to us from Stout Engineering Laboratories in Dearborn, Michigan. Mm-hmm. And this guy, he was an American inventor. He was a designer. Mm-hmm. He was um, an aeronautical engineer, and of course, he was the head of the Stout Engineering Company or Engineering Laboratories there in Dearborn. Yep, formerly uh, uh, chief of the aircraft division at Packard Motor Car Company, which you know I'm required to mention Packard whenever it shows up. Of course, and I would expect you to, Ben, because uh, you know that that all plays into this because he has um, aeronautical experience, he has mm-hmm. automotive experience, just an engineer in general. A um, lot of ideas about um, you know aerodynamics and and uh, and styling, and uh, it makes perfect sense that you know kind of uh, as a side project, this guy would start working on a car, his his dream car. Mm, yes. And his dream car was not exactly what people would expect. No, that's exactly right. I mean, he, his idea was a rear engine, rear wheel drive vehicle that would be lighter, more efficient, safer, mm-hmm. um, easy riding. So, you know, had a smooth ride, uh, something that, um, you know, was roomy, you know, and it also, it was, you know, had good vision, I guess, you know, so you could see all the way around in this thing. Right. Um, something that was you know, still maneuverable. You know, it couldn't be like a, a great big land yacht. Um, had to be something that was uh, capable to to handle daily traffic and you know parking lots and things like that. That one person could reasonably drive. Exactly right. And uh, and but he went about it in a very 
interesting manner, right? I mean, he had yeah. a he had a unique exterior design as well as you know the uh, the qualifications that he required. Right, yeah, and he had a different goal, I think, than quite a few other manufacturers or car designers at the time. The Stout Scarab, from the first concept, was always focused on a family. It meant it meant to be a family car, and this intention is written throughout the Scarab, as we'll find, right? Mm-hmm, that's right. I mean, in fact, what he wanted to design or build was a family room on wheels. Right, yeah. And he literally did it. He succeeded. Uh, yeah. The uh, the part about the exterior that I didn't want to skip over, because there's, there's so much unique about this car. Yeah, well, William Stout was very skilled at uh, at aerodynamics, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it, right? Right. I mean, he was, he, get this, Ben, he had pretty good credentials. He was the creator of the Ford tri-motor plane, which was called the Tin Goose. Yep. Um, that's a three-engine transport aircraft that was produced in, I think it was around 1925, from 1925 through 1933. Um, that was uh, built by the Stout Metal Airplane Division of the Ford Motor Company. So he had close ties with Ford at this time. I think I think Ford was an investor in the company at this point. Uh-huh. Um, it was used for civil aviation and military uses all over the world. There was only something like, you know, less than 200 of these built, like 199 of these were built total. But when you see them come into town, I mean, they, they do come into town on like promotional tours even now. And you could take a ride in a Ford tri-motor at your local airport sometimes. Right. But you got to be ready to look for it. You got to, you got to search for that opportunity. Um, very unique design. I mean, they had lots of innovations in that, in that design. And that was what he was known for was these innovations. So mm-hmm. all this kind of plays into the car that he eventually uh, builds, but the, the, this was the first uh, commercially available monoplane with a uh, cantilevered, internally braced wing, uh, which is also called the Batwing design, and it was the first all-metal plane. Ben, now I can't hardly believe this. In 1925, right. this is the first all-metal plane, and it had kind of that corrugated aluminum on the outside. The plane was again the first all-metal plane. You know, prior to this, planes were stretched canvas over a wooden frame. So right. we're talking about the early, early days of aviation. And here he is, you know, coming out with this first all metal plane. It was pretty revolutionary. Right. And saying, you know what doesn't burn as easily as canvas and wood in a plane? Oh, metal. Uh, but that's not the only innovation he made. He also had the first gasoline driven railroad car, the first, uh, diesel electric streamlined train. And he built, uh, he built multiple other things. The article from which we quoted earlier uh, said that he was credited with more technical inventions than any man since Edison. So this guy has credentials. This guy yeah. has uh, he's got uh, you know he's he's uh, worked through all these designs and everything in aviation and uh, you know he's he's worked with uh, you mentioned rail cars is that right? Right. Yep. Um, so he, this guy has credentials, right? I mean he's mm-hmm. uh, he's skilled in aerodynamics, he's skilled in uh in aviation engineering, automotive engineering as well mm-hmm. with the Packard company and he's also built these rail cars that you mentioned, so he's he's doing a lot of things all at once. And let us not forget this guy is clearly a visionary. So people give him way more slack than they would if he were just Joe or Jane Q public designing a weird car. And let me tell you, it is a weird car design. And, and they <laughs> had to cut him some slack at this time because, you know, when you look at the Scarab from 1936 and then you look at just an average car, I guess, from 1936. Right. The Scarab looks completely different. There's nothing similar to a, a car of that era. Right. In an era of long, low uh I, I, let's say curvaceous cars, yeah. 
the the scarab is like a bug. It's like a bug on wheels. And you want to say nothing. I guess there were a couple of oddball cars. I think the Dymaxion was another one. Yeah, is that the right? Buckminster Fuller car. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, very good, Ben. The uh, the, the Dymaxion was one that was similar, I guess, but not exactly the no. same, not nearly as aerodynamic as this thing was. Now, originally, it was thought of as ugly, uh, which I think you could probably understand when you first look at it, but as you and I have said, Ben, when we talk about this car, because we've been right next to it, we stood next to this car for... An hour. Yeah. As we talked about it. And we looked it over and we, you know, we kind of, uh, you know, oohed and odd over the details. Try to peer into the interior. It, it becomes more and more beautiful to you as you understand how functional this thing is. I mean, it really is functional and it, and it does kind of grow on you. I mean, it's ugly, yes, but it grows on you. And, and now. It's got personalities. And Scott. now a lot of people, yeah, it's got a good personality. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of people think of it as an Art Deco icon and they see it as a, as a beautiful car. And I, I totally understand that. I get it now. It does look like a beautiful car. I mean, after spending a little time around it like we did. Yeah. I I get it. Yeah. I get it now too, uh, because we were able to be there in person and check it out. But we should go ahead and, and point out that like many great inventors, William Stout, uh, looked to nature for his inspiration. It's not called a stout scarab because he likes alliteration, or maybe he does. It's not called that entirely for that reason. It's called that because the scarab's shape, the beetle, is what inspired him to uh, to create the scarab this way. Yeah, that's right. Even in the front uh, the front grill, I guess, if you can call it a grill, because the, the grill of this thing is really at the back if you right. want to yeah. be technical about it. But Well, let's be technical. <laughs> let's, say, let's say the front end... Yeah. Uh, there's a scarab design built right into the, uh, it's pressed right into the aluminum bodywork. Yeah, and it's almost like, you know how uh, the Batmobile will have a Batman logo stamped on it? That's what you and I were joking about earlier when we said, you know, this looks like it could be some sort of early crime fighters car. Yeah, it's like know? a superhero car. The scarab strikes again. Yeah, it's really a cool design. Now, there's a lot of pioneering ideas right. in this vehicle, so... Uh, one thing that we need to do need to say is that you know when you first see it, mm-hmm. it it looks very long. It looks like a, it's deceptively short when you see it in person compared to the way it looks in a photograph because um, it has this wheelbase that's it's really about 135 inches, which is again it's 16 feet long. Right. Now that's relatively long, but it has the appearance of being something that's like 30 feet long because it looks like a Greyhound bus. Yep. Kinda exactly. Kind of has that appearance, that bathtub. Vehicle type appearance that, uh, you know, is, is something we see from right around that era, I guess. Sort of a rolling rectangle. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I like that. But the, the way that it has that real high belt line and the, the, uh, the kind of almost chopped window appearance. Yeah. Uh, gives it a long, low, wide appearance. And it's really kind of deceptive when you see it in, in, uh, in person. I'm sorry, in the photo versus in person because in person you realize like, well, this isn't all that big. Right. Yeah. Uh, they even take off the running boards and, the okay so spoiler alert everything about the scarab is designed around that concept that scott mentioned earlier the interior uh room to have a family room mm-hmm. and so the the cabin is expanded to the full width of the car and i think you mentioned earlier there's a rear engine vehicle right yeah it's a rear engine vehicle so let's talk about the engine for just a minute and we'll kind of work our way through how about how about we go engine uh, then we'll talk about the body a little bit, and then maybe we'll move to the interior. How about that? You got it. Sound good? All right. Deal. So let's talk about the, uh, the the engine first. And it was powered by, of course, you know, his, his ties with Ford. Yeah. Powered by a Ford Flathead V8. 
um, and a Ford three-speed gearbox. Now, these produced about 85 horsepower, and this was a very common driveline at the time, and this was a really smart move on his part, I think, because, you know, some of this was due to his relationship with Ford, I'm sure. Yeah. But it also came down to if you need parts. You know, if you need a part for this, it's easy to find at your local Ford dealer. It was on the shelf. So this made perfect sense. Now, however, the difference was this Ford V8 was, um, you know, mounted with the flywheel forward. So, in other words, the uh, I guess the cooling fan would be towards the back of the vehicle. Right. Right behind that grill that we see on, on the back end, which is really, you know, this beautiful waterfall design. Almost. One of the most uh, captivating features of the exterior, it I was, think. like, strikingly beautiful. It really was. Um, so, you know... The, it was also placed over the rear wheels for traction, um, and which also allowed some added cabin space, as you mentioned, Ben. So yeah. It's part of that whole thing. Um, again, you know, so the fan, again, at the very back, right behind the grill, um, it had, if you want to go to the chassis, yeah. it had all-wheel independent suspension. And it had something called oleo struts. Now, oleo struts, that's spelled O-L-E-O, yeah, this... all the way around. Mm-hmm. makes perfect sense why he would use these, right? Yeah, it makes perfect sense because it's all about a smoother, quieter ride. Oh, that's right. And the other thing is because they're an aircraft uh, part, I guess. Right. And, yeah. and he has great experience with uh, with you know airplanes, aeronautical engineering, and why not put aircraft struts on his car, right? So these these oleo struts are air and then oil hydraulic shock absorbers. Yeah. Uh, which you know even now I think they're currently used on aircraft, so it's a good design and uh, gave it that smooth, smooth ride that he was looking for. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself. Learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. 
Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was bought it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It is a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, anything else on the suspension, Ben, or do you want to move on to body? One other note about the suspension that may interest some people here is that the Scarab suspension inspired the uh, suspension of a very famous performance car company that you might remember, uh, the Chapman strut used no, by Lotus. No kidding. Yeah, dude. It comes from the uh, Scarab suspension. I had no idea. So Colin yeah. Chapman was looking to the stout Scarab. Of all things. Oh, Isn't my that gosh. crazy? That is really weird. But you know what? I guess you have to look everywhere for you know something that innovative to happen, right? I mean, and where better to look than the stout Scarab? Because, I mean, he was just packing all kinds of unusual things into this, this, uh, this form. Yeah, it's just really weird to me because when I when I found this out, I put a picture of the scarab and a picture of a lotus, uh, you know, side by side mm-hmm. on the on the computer. I just stared at him for a little while. Yeah, no way, no <laughs> no comparison really. I mean, they I don't, think yeah, that's the only thing they took under the skin. Yeah, they're uh, <laughs> slightly similar, I guess maybe. All right, so let's move on to the body now. Yeah. Now again, you mentioned that this was intended to resemble the scarab beetle, right? Right. That's its namesake, um, but. The uh, the body itself, we I don't think we've talked about this. Maybe maybe we have, maybe we haven't been. But the uh, the the thirty two concept the one was built in nineteen thirty two, so it predates what we call the production scarab. Which right, we'll talk about a, prototype, a bit. yeah, yeah. The prototype was built in nineteen thirty two. It was built from aluminum and it had magnesium doors, which is really remarkable for nineteen thirty two. However, I think those were considered uh, to be cost prohibitive for production. So the first production scarab, which was built in nineteen thirty four. Um, which is kind of confusing because the one in the museum is labeled 1936. 36. Yeah, so the first production scarab that came out, which was, I believe, 1934. You're correct. Had a steel body and a steel space frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the thing about the magnesium and magnesium alloys, as we've seen in a couple of earlier cars, is that they're uh, just a devil to work with. And highly flammable. Yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, now, I don't think that really came into it or not, but, you know, we see some stuff from uh, from racing, you know, where they're magnesium parts that just burn like, you know, they're, they're extremely white hot right, as they're yeah. burning. So um, I don't think that really came into play here with the Stout Scarab, but uh, who knows? I mean, the cost, I think, was the main prohibitive uh, feature yeah. on that whole thing. So the second Scarab comes out a year later in th- 35, right? Mm-hmm. Second I, production I, I believe so, that's right. And we'll talk about total production numbers at some point. Right. Uh, but they did have some crazy innovative body treatments. And, and you briefly mentioned this just once, Ben, and I want to say it again uh, just so that people understand. Now, there's about six of these that I'd like to get to. Okay. Um, 
really innovative pioneering features, I guess, for the time, for the mid-1930s. The fenders were incorporated into the body. Now, that doesn't sound so unusual now, but in 1936, take a look at any 1936 car, yeah. and they have those huge fenders, and you know, front and rear, mm-hmm. and they're usually connected with uh, running boards, which were also deleted from the Stout Scarab. That was the second thing I want to talk about. Yep. Uh, because you know, it goes along with the fenders, I guess, and um, you know, it's just unusual to see a car from that era without fenders and running boards. Mm-hmm. I would say it's remarkable. I, I actually, I. I'm having a tough time thinking of another example of a car without fenders or running boards. I, uh, am, there may be one out there, but um, at the time it was pretty innovative. So yeah. the other thing, uh, the third one would be uh, rear wheel skirts, which mm-hmm. are called fender skirts sometimes. Um, now, early, early on in nineteen, you know, late nineteen twenties, I believe, like nineteen twenty-eight, I think there was a Stutz car that used them as a streamlining device, and then someone picked up on that, you know, in 1932, I think it was the Graham Page cars that picked up on that and used it as a factory design, a, a um, you know, a production design. Yeah. Uh, you know, more of styling than anything else. It wasn't really about streamline. It was for styling. And then it wasn't until about the 1950s, I guess, that they became a real popular trend and carried through the 1960s. But, you know, these rear wheel skirts in the 1930s, mid-1930s, pretty rare at the time. So, again, innovation, yes, uh, you know, for aerodynamics, we'll find out maybe that wasn't the case uh-huh. in this situation, um, <laughs> which is kind of something that I want to talk about at the very end here, I guess. You got it. Um, hidden hinges. That's another thing. Yeah. A lot of cars of the day, even, I guess, what we call swanky cars, you know, if you Ooh. want to call them swanky. Sure. I yeah. like that term. Swanky. I like it, too. It's a good one. Um, they had exposed door hinges or external hinges or deck lid hinges or even you know, hood hinges. Right. And uh, you'd see that was very common. At the time, and this one had none of that. It was very, uh, very flush, I guess, very smooth. And speaking of flush, they also had flush, um, you know, these scarabs had flush mounted glass, which was not so much for aerodynamics, as we'll find out, as it was for um, reducing the amount of wind noise as the car traveled at speed. Right. And, and that's what all of these benefits were for. You know, when you look back, I mean, I, I meant kind of hinted that the wheel skirts were not so much for aerodynamics, but for wind noise. He, being an aeronautical engineer, decided that it was important to have a quiet interior because, you know, you're traveling at, let's say, 80 miles per hour down the road because this thing was capable of that, I think. It was capable of over 100 is what he said. I think it was only tested to something like 90. That's true. I believe. And um, I think I read that somewhere. Um, But a lot of this was to uh, minimize wind noise at speed. Yeah, going back to, again, the aesthetic, if you're in your family room on a delightful road trip, you don't want to have things uh, ruin the illusion, you know, of you and and the kids or the wife or the husband sitting around playing cards or, you know, uh, maybe maybe a board game. I don't know. Possible, and it was it was definitely possible in this vehicle, right? Yeah, it takes a real smooth ride to play a board game. It definitely would, but it, but it was totally possible because yeah. it had a very innovative interior as well, right? Ah, yes, and here we arrive. Um you know this is one of the parts that is the most interesting to me because I always wanted to own an RV. Mm-hmm. And this is this is similar to that. Or a custom van. You know, more and more I'm thinking I would pick the custom van if I just had to worry about me living in it. Because you, you that, can install some stuff. That goes way back in our uh, in our car stuff, maybe even <laughs> high-speed stuff days when we talked about custom vans. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you were pretty excited about them, I know. 
Oh, man. Yeah, it's one of my dreams. Well, as it turns out, this vehicle from 1936, again, has a lot of uh, what you call a custom van, minivan. A lot of people kind of, uh, they get, you know, the uh, their back bristles up a bit when they say minivan because uh, they don't want to compare it to that. But it's pretty similar. Yeah, it's similar enough that it is commonly regarded as the first minivan. Ah, uh, yeah, it's been said that. Now, so again, some people... They say, I don't think I'd like to call it a minivan because I don't like to put the two in the same sentence. Right. But uh, honestly, there's a lot of features that we see in modern minivans that were in this vehicle. And we're talking about, like, configurable interior space. I mean, mm-hmm. that was totally unheard of at the that time. That was mind-blowing, in, in, yeah. In 1936, they're, they're doing, uh, like, reconfigurable seats. You can You can change things around as needed. All the furniture was somehow convertible. Yeah, even, I think you can even turn the driver's seat. You, driver's seat was the only one you couldn't pick up and move toward the table. Now, the, the driver's seat was fixed. It was, it was, uh, permanently in position in front of the steering wheel, but everything else could move around. Yeah. And there were as many as, uh, let's see, there would be the passenger seat, which you could swivel around. Yeah. There was another seat behind the driver's seat, which I believe could be swiveled and moved around as well. Mm-hmm. Then there was a fold-down table, right? Right. There's a fold-out table, and then there's the back seat, which is pretty much a couch. Yeah. It was a bench, which became a couch. Now, I mean, I don't know if that's really converting anything. I mean, is it it a bench that becomes a couch? I mean, that's kind of the same thing, I guess. But it's all plush, very very padded, and very uh, very comfortable. Right. The fold-down table makes a difference here, I guess, because that becomes like a game table, Mm -hmm. or you could have drinks with friends. Dinner table. Yeah, dinner table, that's right. You could do a little bit of light camping in this thing, I would guess. I Made your kids do their homework on the road (laughs) trip. That's right. And it had something else, Ben. It had a, a, a... a unique interior treatment as well, right? Yeah, it had these lace wood interior sidewalls, uh, which look great, but they're there not so much for the aesthetic as they are for practicality. Now, the one that I saw had a, a headliner that was also lace wood, uh, so everything inside was wood. Uh, really kind of cool design. I mean, it does look like an old camper design. I suppose, yeah, with, totally. With so much wood and, and custom work inside. Mm-hmm. And the seats, I don't know how to describe the seats, I mean, but they're pure 1930s they look yeah really really cool design um so again just a it's an interesting interesting design all around and this configurable idea i mean how long ago was it with that we saw like the stow and go seating in chrysler and and yeah. it's a big deal that you know finally minivans had a flat load floor uh because before that they had you know there were all these um, areas where like you know the transmission tunnel would have a bump to it right and, um, and there would just be a very small hatchback trunk area or when you open the side door oh that's another thing when you open the side door you know there'd be a step up and in yeah that wasn't there it was a flat floor so on that the was scarab a, yeah and the on the scarab this is cool too ben the the driver's door was where a driver's door normally would be you would expect that right right but the rest of the side was completely solid it was uh it was one piece you know, there's nothing else there oh yeah it has monocoque design if you go to the passenger side and you uh, and you, you look for the door on the passenger side, it's farther back on the vehicle, kind of like where you would expect a side sliding door, only it was a conventional door. It opened regularly. Right. But the, the passenger had to get in kind of uh, mid-ship, I guess, if you will. Why so, is that, you think? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I guess it was just elimination of parts. You know, it was a, it was a simplistic design, you know, and yeah. everybody enters on the passenger side through the middle of the vehicle, even the passenger. They would have to get in and kind of climb up to the front. Which wasn't hard because there was so much room in there. Right. Uh, the headroom that was was, I guess, for the day it was immense. It was really, you know, kind of a tall vehicle. It's surprisingly, it, it's one of those vehicles that feels larger on the inside yeah. than it looks on the outside. Deceptive. Uh, yeah, deceptive is a perfect word. And 
this was no small number of people rolling through here. This car was built to haul seven passengers. Mm-hmm. Seven passengers. Looks like it would sleep seven. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it had a lot of room inside. It really right. did. So another thing, and uh, stop me if I'm jumping ahead of the game here, Scott. Another thing that I really like about the Scarab is that it was actually driven. It wasn't just a car that people... You know, again, this is right before the dawn of concept cars or dream cars, really, right? That's right. And it never really got to production. And we'll talk about production numbers in just one moment here. But yeah. but you'll find that the ones that do exist have high miles on them. And that would uh, would surprise a lot of people. Well, in fact, the uh, the founder of the company, you know, William yep. Stout, he drove his own version of his Stout, you know, the, his own prototype, his own concept vehicle, Something like two hundred and fifty thousand miles is what he put on his own version of the of the car, just across the U.S. Exactly right. And you'll find a lot of these. I mean, it's not uncommon for them to have one hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand miles on them. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the museum cars. And uh, here's a nice tie-in as well. Uh, so they, without revealing the production numbers yet, uh, they continued after the thirty-six Scarab to make Stout Scarabs. And came out with something called the Stout Scarab Experimental. Ah, that's right. And they called it the Project Y, which uh, I guess if you go back to Harley Earl's, you know, Y job, yeah, that was the experimental name for, I believe, it was military aircraft. Is that right? Yeah, they used Y as uh, as an experimental code. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these early manufacturers, when they would use a uh, a Y in their product code, I guess, for their concept vehicle, the dream car. Uh, that would signify that this is an experimental vehicle. A little bit of cachet, if you will. Yeah, very cool. So the Stout Project Y, which was which came about in 1946, just after World War II. Yep. Um, they had returned, I guess, with another experimental kind of unique vehicle, but it was slightly more pedestrian, I guess, than the than the previous design. Right. Yeah. It uh it had a two-door uh, design, wraparound windshield. It also had, and this is one of the, this is one of those cocktail trivia pieces that uh, you guys can all drop into a conversation. This also had the world's first fiberglass body. Ah, that is really cool because this is 1946, and we think of, uh, we tend to think of the first fiberglass body as being the Corvette. Usually. And that's, you know, 1953, somewhere yeah. around there, you know, that when they were doing the, the concept vehicle and the production version. Uh, we typically think of that. I know people toyed around with, with fiberglass before that. Or fiberglass pieces, yeah, components. You know what? I'm at a uh, loss here, Ben. I'm not sure. They might be the first production vehicle with a, with a, um, with a fiberglass body. The but, Corvette. Yeah, exactly right. But this is the absolute first car with an all fiberglass body and a fully pneumatic suspension. So a couple of firsts on the Project Y for Stout in 1946. Now, of course, the car never saw production. Right. And the estimated selling price, Ben, is pretty high. I mean, I, do I, do we want to talk about the estimated selling price of this one and the, the, uh, the Stout Scarab that we saw at the same time? Yeah. Let's okay. do, let's do the experimental first and then the one we saw. Okay. So the experimental, which there was really only one produced. Right. And never got to production, et cetera. It's still in a museum somewhere. But I can they, see. they had a price point. They determined that the required selling price in 1946 was going to be $10,000 for this Project Y car. Wow. Do now, you have a calculation? I do. I have an inflation, uh, calculation. All right. Well, as always, my friend, uh, let me brace myself. All right, you need to brace yourself for this one because in 1946, that $10,000 uh, would equal in 2014 dollars $122,227.18. Not going to do it. That is an expensive vehicle. 
I and, feel uh, physically uncomfortable. I mean, when you look at it, it was so different from every other thing that was out there. Yeah. I and mean, it really is. I yeah. mean, even this Project Y, which had, uh, I don't know, it looks like it compromised a bit. You know, there's the windows are bigger. You know, you mentioned the, the door design was a little bit more standard. And, right. Um, it just looks a little bit more standard like a, like a sedan would look. It looks kind of like a station wagon mixed with a sedan. It's, almost. uh, it's strange to begin with, but, uh, yeah. it's not quite as strange for the Project Y, I guess. Um, so that's that's pretty pricey, 122 grand in you know 1941. Right, and now let's talk about why they made the experimental, why they made Project Y. Huh. Uh, so the uh, the reason that they did this is that it turns out the original Stout Scarabs, including the 36, were not selling as well as William Stout and his friends had hoped. Uh, they were. They were supposed to be. There's a great ad in Fortune magazine from 1936, actually, where it says, you know, get in on the ground floor of the Stout Scarab. Uh, you fellow wealthy person can buy one of these limited production cars. And they said the production would be limited to a hundred cars. Prices starting at five grand. Yeah. Five grand. Now I've done the inflation for this as well, Ben. So, okay. So, you know, you're talking about. You know, 1936, $5,000, that would, in 2014, that would equal $85,734.89. So, again, very expensive. Uh, just for comparison, and this is where it ties in, this is where it ties in to our previous episode. Just for comparison, the Chrysler Imperial Airflow around the same time cost about $1,350. $1,300, and this is, comes in at five grand. All right, so, you know, one thing that we haven't mentioned in this episode, though, this is right at the end of the Depression. Yeah, so how are you going to expect people to pay the equivalent of almost $90,000 for a uh, for a family room on wheels when you yourself may not have a room for your family? All right, so, you know, obviously this is uh, a practical design. I understand that. You know, he's yeah. built a lot of really interesting features into it. And, you know, they've got this board of directors, which is full of, of, uh, of some of the big wigs. And we'll talk yeah. about that in a second here. Okay. But, but he's loaded this car with lots of features. And, you know, he's saying that, you know, the price point has to be a $5,000 because I've put that much effort and, and technology into this car. That's what it's worth. And they actually, uh, if I can let the, if I can let the, uh, badger out of the can here. Sure. Uh, they were not making money when they sold those for five thousand. No, they definitely weren't. They uh, they actually cost more than that to produce. So he was actually you know cutting the price just a bit. Didn't make the uh, the investors all that happy. I would guess to do that. Now the the thing is that a lot of the cars that ended up being produced because um, very few were produced. We should just go ahead and talk about production numbers at this point. Okay, so uh, we'll go ahead and uh, guess. Let's say the Fortune magazine article said there was a limit of 100. Did they make 100? They did not make 100. Did they get to half of that? Did they make 50? Did not. 20? Nope. 10? Less than that. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... 
We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught— a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. From iHeart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was booted! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Nine stout scarabs were produced. Nine ever were produced, and only five of those that were produced exist today. So they're extremely, extremely rare. That's why we were so lucky to stand next to that one. Uh, yeah. Museum. All right. So, again, five of these exist today. Nine were produced. And of those nine that were produced... And because they were so expensive and because they were so advanced and everything, you know, the, the cost was way up there, um, they went to wealthy families. You know, th that's who ended up becoming the owners of these of these production, if you can call it production, I guess, stouts. Right. And some of the early owners, just to give you an idea of who owned these things. Um, now, some of these were board members on the stout company. You know, I think the, the majority uh, of them were. I believe so. So, I um, mean, you know, a lot of these are, are the wealthy individuals that were also – uh, closely tied to the car itself. So, of course, they're going to buy them and, and drive them around town or 
you know, maybe they got a little discount on it. Who knows? Right, and they're old wealth, too. Yeah, exactly right, because we're talking about families like the Firestone family, of course, renowned for tires. Right. Uh, the Wrigley family, which is, uh, you know, the, the chewing gum magnet. Right. Um, That's uh, Philip Wrigley and Harvey Firestone, I think. Yeah, exactly right. The Dow family from the Dow Chemical Company. Which you may recognize. You may recognize <laughs> that. Yeah, right. How about the, uh, the Stranahans, who were the founders of Champion Spark Plugs? So uh, you see that these are, you know, the... Uh, the Ultimate top end wealthy families here in the United States, you know, that were at the time who were uh, who were interested in owning and driving these things because, well, they had something to gain from it. You know, they're on the on the board. They want this to succeed. They want this to uh, to to be promoted and and do well, obviously. So they're going to drive them around town and you know see what happens. And of course, you know, William he's driving around his own uh, stout scarab. So there's several of these driving around all over the United States. It's yeah. just. They never quite caught on because they were so expensive and so outlandishly designed that people just couldn't get behind the idea. But, of course, uh, now the people who are lucky enough to have them are champions. But we here's how we know that these were good cars. Uh, I found a really interesting estimate from an article that I think you and I both read in the course of our research, and that's that over a 6,000-mile trip, uh, Stout Scarab, like William Stout's actual scarab got about 18.8 miles per gallon. Not bad. Not bad, especially back then. And then, uh, let's also keep in mind that of the ones that survive, most were driven a great deal. These were not babied cars kept in a, uh, high end garage. Yeah. I think we talked about, uh, William, uh, you know, William Stout driving his own car, something right. like 250,000. And then the, uh, the cars that you find for restoration today are the ones that have been restored. A lot of them have, you know, 200,000 miles on them or more. Right, yeah. And I want to give a specific public thank you to Ronald Schneider of Milwaukee. He owns two of the nine scarabs. I have seen some videos with uh, Ronald uh, driving and kind of showing off his, his stout scarabs. And uh, they look so cool. I mean, he and he did a ground up restoration on on both of them, I believe. I mean, I think he said there were basket cases when he yeah, got them. Yeah, yeah, uh, pretty much junkyard stuff. One of my favorite quotations he said was, "Whatever wasn't missing was worn out. Just about anything that could be wrong was." Oh yeah, I can <laughs> totally see that. Um, so and you know, in these uh, these films that I watched, um, you know, you could see that he's put a lot of care and effort into the restoration of these things, and and they're uh, museum quality pieces or. Better than museum quality pieces. They're more like Concord level yeah, restorations. Yeah, he, he took it to uh, the Great American Race, one of them. He took them twice. And then also, I got to say, Scott, uh, with knowing how they were before and what he did to bring them back, I, I feel like there's, after a certain threshold of repair, you cross the line from restoration to resurrection. Because mm. he, he brought these these dead vehicles back to uh the living world of autos yeah because likely they were headed to a junkyard somewhere oh I, and, uh, uh, yeah so he preserved a piece of american automotive history definitely so uh, it's a good work and um you know the very last thing that i think we need to mention is one that just it kind of weighs into this whole equation of why it didn't succeed maybe oh what's that uh, we talked about price and we talked about how you know strange and unique the design was and people just didn't really you know buy into it initially, right? Yeah, it's weird. Well, the other thing was that, you know, of course, World War II was happening at the same time, and that it just absolutely interrupted the development and marketing of this whole car. So, mm -hmm. you know, World War II, for a lot of industries, I guess, that meant a lot of uh, a lot of growth. You know, they were able to, to succeed during that time. But it also meant some industries went away, and one of these was uh, this, this startup auto manufacturer, you know, William Stout. Yeah, and 
hardly the only example of something like that. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. And I mean, others thrived. You know, mm. some went away, and this is one that just happened to go away, and the timing was just uh, was, was exceptionally poor, I guess. You know, at the, at the tail end of the Depression and the beginning of World War II. Yeah. Now, uh, this kind of closes our chapter here on the Stout Scarab, which I think is both a great piece in history and a good design. I'll say it, especially, you know what, forget what I was about to say. Regardless of the time, I think it, it's a good design. I kind of like that, uh, it's outside is so controversial. Yeah, I kind of do too. And, uh, like we said, you know, it, it grew on us. I mean, uh, you know, the, the longer we were around it and the longer that we talked about it and really investigated, you know, what it was all about. Right. Uh, it became, I don't know, something that was, uh, much more intriguing to us. And as we dug into the history, uh, you know, we found so many interesting facts. I mean, stuff we couldn't even have time to share with you today. There's more to it than this. Uh, clearly there always is, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it was a, uh, one of the standouts, I guess, at the uh, museum for me. But not my favorite. Also not my favorite. Now we haven't talked about our favorite yet because nope. in the Thunderbolt episode, uh, you know, we, we mentioned that that was not our favorite as well. And this was not my favorite again. Yeah. Well, uh, is it time? Should we talk about our favorites? Maybe we can just briefly if you'd like to. All right. You, you go first. All right. My favorite was, uh, was Harley Earl's personal vehicle. It was the LeSabre. Uh huh. And, uh, I just loved the looks of it. I love the idea that he drove it daily in Detroit, you know, to and yeah. from work after it was done with its show circuit, you know, on the Motorama or wherever. I, I don't know if it, I, I can't tell you specifically if that one went to Motorama or not, but it was right in that sweet spot when Motorama was happening. All right. For me, it's the Tasco, uh, that, because it so clearly descends from aviation in, in terms of design. And, uh, it's got the, the wheels separated in the front, kind of like the, uh, kind of like the Prowler. Yeah. Motorcycle fenders. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. And yeah. But they're enclosed. They are enclosed, which is a nice look. And this car is way, way cooler than the Prowler. I'll go ahead and say it. I'm not a big Prowler fan. Mm-hmm. I think I've, uh, I've noticed that about you because we've mentioned the Prowler. A few times. Right. And, uh, you kind of, uh, scrunch up your nose a little bit. It's just not for me. But, yeah. but the Tasco definitely is. And it has a cockpit design. It, it's just, it's a, it's a great car. Well, all the interior controls look like they were, they came mm-hmm. right from an aircraft. It had, mm-hmm. uh, bright red interior, which was really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting car. It was really cool. Kind of a, a canopy. Yeah. Top as well. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. Uh, almost like a World War II fighter plane. Yeah. Now, Good uh, choice. Now, Scott, we had talked about this before off air and I have thought a lot about it and I've changed my mind because my original pick, of course, you remember, was, uh, not the Tasco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was, uh, it was a, a futuristic design, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and I think my specific dream was that I would drive around this thing that looks like a spacecraft and order pizza. Was the, uh, Chrysler Gilda? I think yeah. Was yeah. Called. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's still, it's a great, it's a low car. Um, I just want an older car, I guess, as part of it. And I like the wheel design. Sure. But those are all stories for other days. We hope that you guys have enjoyed our podcast on the Stout Scarab, and we'd love to hear what you think about its appearance. Are you for it or against it? Uh, and before we head out, Scott, I've got some listener mail if you want to hear it. I'd love to hear it. Okay, Jackson writes to us from 
Detroit, Michigan, Scott. And he says, hello, I've recently started to listen to your podcast, and I really enjoy it. And even though I'm an engineer for one of the big three, I still learn something from you guys time to time. I was wondering if you could possibly talk about Maybach, the history of the company, vehicles they made, etc. I think this would make for an interesting podcast. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Not a bad suggestion. That's really cool. And uh, it's nice to hear that uh, somebody who knows an awful lot about the auto industry may pick up a little something now and then from us. Yeah, that's flattering. I don't know what it would be, though. I don't, I don't know either. I've tried, maybe it's just some of the odd, interesting facts, because uh, engineers, they're pretty good with numbers and figures and dates and things like that, but uh, I don't know, some of the, the oddball stuff that we pick up, uh, not yeah. a lot of people know about that. It's certainly not the amazing collection of puns, uh, but uh, yeah, I think that's an excellent suggestion, too, so thanks so much for writing in, Jackson. Act surprised if we do a podcast on Maybach, and uh, listeners... This brings us to a very important point that we always like to put in the show. If you have a podcast suggestion or a topic you'd like to cover as us to cover in the future, then write to us. We are Car Stuff HSW on Twitter and on Facebook, and uh, we post a lot of stuff on both of those that doesn't make it into the audio podcast. So if you like cars, that's the right place to go. And if you want to listen to any podcast we have ever, ever done, literally ever done we've been doing this for a while yeah i think we are we're into the 590s then we're getting close to that 600 mark yeah i think next two weeks we'll have recorded our 600th show somewhere around there i know we've been uh sort of counting it down but uh we're getting yeah. close and if all the Facebook and Twitter stuff is just not quite your bag, uh, don't worry about that. You can always send us an email directly. We are carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was good. But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.